I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, filling in for Matt Chorley with a bonus episode today. Every week on Times Radio, we speak to Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies about a leader of the opposition. And every month, we round them all up and bring them to you right here on the pod. Matt and Nigel kicked off the month with George Blansbury, who became leader of the opposition in 1931. Yeah, this time every week we are counting down a different leader of the opposition. Uh, with a he- little bit of help from Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies, who joins me now. Morning, Nigel. Morning, Matt. So, who have we got this week? Well, this week we've got George Lansbury. Um, and um, I, I put a bit of a, um, a quiz on Twitter just now, asking if anyone could um, get the link between this week's Leader of the Opposition um, and Bagpuss um, and uh, the Clangers. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, managed to work that one out. No, I saw you. I saw you suggest <laughs> it. So, what is the connection between George Lansbury, Labour leader of the opposition, 1931 to 1935, and the Clangers? Well, the connection is, and I have to um, tip my hat to Tom Hamilton on Twitter, who actually got this straight away, which I think is deeply sad. Um, but um, he he managed to guess correctly that um, the the link is that Oliver Postgate, who created um, not only the Clangers but Bagpuss and Ivor the Engine. Um, was the grandson of George Lansbury. Um, and um, it's, it's saying quite something that he's not even the most famous um, grand, uh, grandchild of George Lansbury because another one is, of course, Angela Lansbury. Well, that was going to be my um, next question. So is Angela Lansbury related to George Lansbury? Absolutely, yes. She's his granddaughter. Oh, wow. Oh, like properly related, not so. Absolutely, yeah, completely. So, so now we've spoken about the, all, all the people who are more famous and successful <laughs> than actual George Lansbury. Who was George Lansbury and how did he end up as the leader of the opposition? Well, he was uh, born in, in Suffolk in 1859. Uh, he was the son of a, a railway worker, um, also named George, um, and uh, his progressive-minded wife, um, Anne, who was actually, I think, more of an influence on uh, the young George than, than his father. Certainly in his memoirs, he, he spends more time talking about his, his mother than uh, than his father. Um, but although he's born in Suffolk, he's actually more associated with um, London's East End. They moved there when he was uh, quite young and he um, left school at, at 14, quite quite usual at that time, and uh, went into manual labour, including a job unloading coal wagons. Um, and he entered politics as a radical liberal. Of course, the Labour Party at that time wasn't in existence. 
Um, and so he became secretary of the Bow and Bromley Liberal and Radical Association. Um, but fairly shortly after that, in 1892, he became a socialist um, and a leading member of what was then called the Social Democratic uh, Federation, uh, which sounds a bit like it might be a sort of uh, centrist party being launched by Tony Blair um, at some point, but it's actually one of the, the more extreme um, left-wing parties uh, that were in existence at that time. Uh, it's one of the movements that uh, was involved in the establishment of the Labour Party, but was actually on the sort of fringes of that. Um, and he then joined the Independent Labour Party and became a councillor in Poplar and was elected to Parliament for Bowen Bromley um, a bit later than that in 19. 19- 10 and his his career really i mean if you um think of sort of some of the um causes that he espoused at the time he's certainly a progressive he was one of his major causes was um that of women's suffrage and he actually resigned his seat in parliament in 1912 over that issue specifically uh, to protest uh, against uh, the uh, lack of votes for women um he lost the by-election um uh, when he did that and wasn't back in Parliament for another 10 years. But he continued to campaign for it. And he was actually sent to prison for three months the following year for a speech when he seemed to endorse the suffragettes uh, arson campaign. And he was convicted then of, of incitement. Um, he was also um, profoundly uh, anti-war. He was a pacifist. Um, and during the First World War, uh, he used his position as um, editor of a socialist newspaper, the Daily Herald, um, to campaign against the war. Um, he welcomed the Russian Revolution in 1917 um, and in uh, 1920 visited Russia and, and met Lenin. So um, he's he's not exactly a centrist, I think um, it's fair to say. Um, and he also was a local councillor. And, and nine- I was gonna yeah, sorry, say, no, I was going to say, is, is that why he didn't make it to uh, to being prime minister, do you think? Is that... Um, the Labour, I mean, the Labour Party in the what, early 30s was still quite, you know, a sort of relatively new, well, about 20 years old in, in existence, still finding its feet and actually, you know, you win, well, it's probably still the case, you win elections from the centre. Yes, and I think that's certainly why he um, didn't remain as Labour leader. I mean, he um, he was involved in um, his uh, time as a, as a councillor in a revolt against um the uh, the rate system and was sent to prison again. As I say, he's he's quite a radical figure, but his pacifism was what really brought him down because he became Labour leader. We talked last week about um, the huge crushing defeat of um, the Labour Party um, in the 1931 election after it split. Um, and he was one of the cabinet ministers. He made it to cabinet as a token left winger uh, in 1929 as, as minister for, for works, essentially. Um, and he was one of the uh, only cabinet ministers or the only cabinet minister to keep his seat in that um, landslide defeat in 31. So that's why he became uh, leader he was of the, the Labour last Party one left. in 31. He was one of the last ones left, exactly. Um, and so he became leader at that point, um, and he would have then continued as leader up to the 1935 election, but just before that election at the Labour Party conference um, that year, um, there was a huge row about... Um, international uh, affairs there was um, at the time there was um, a, a threatened invasion by Italy um, of Abyssinia um, and they put a motion forward calling for sanctions against Italy which he profoundly disagreed with um, and he saw that as part of his pacifism he, th- he thought that was economic warfare and he gave a vehement speech against it um, and he was attacked then by Ernest Bevin um, a more centrist um, Labour politician who was then leader of the Transport and General Workers Union um, and he um, basically demolished his case and the vote was lost. And it was in the aftermath of that that Lansbury then resigned as leader. 
Um, and he was replaced by one of the other only su- sort of survivors from the 31 disaster, uh, someone named Clement Attlee, um, ah. who was, um, who was excluded was from our list. Indeed, he's excluded because he was too successful. Um, <laughs> and um, Attlee had been, as I say, he'd been a, a junior minister in the previous Labour government and survived the, the big defeat in 31. So he became deputy leader um, to Lansbury throughout that time. Um, and when Lansbury fell, the election was looming uh, fairly imminently. Um, and Attlee was put in as the interim leader. Um, uh-huh. And that interim lasted for 20 years. Can we finish with one final bit of trivia? Which which Australian prime minister is related to George Lansbury? Oh my goodness! Um, oh gosh, I don't I don't know. I give up. <laughs> right, somebody's just taken that Malcolm Turnbull is Angela Lansbury's cousin, apparently. Wow. So there's um uh, it seems that uh, Malcolm Turnbull, former Australian prime minister, his mother Coral Lansbury, at least according to Wikipedia, was a distant cousin of Angela Lansbury, who was the granddaughter. Of George Lansbury. So there we are. Wow. So at well, least somebody they, in that they, family made it to Prime Minister. They did have a lot of children, so it's, it's not surprising there's quite a lot of them about. That was Nigel Fletcher there with the story of George Lansbury. Next up is James Maxton, who was technically leader of the opposition during World War II, although he was never recognised as such. Right, this week we're talking about um, James Maxton, um, known as, as Jimmy Maxton. Um, and uh, I'm afraid you're going to be in Gordon Brown's bad books because um, he actually is a great fan of, of Jimmy Maxton um, and uh, wrote part of his PhD thesis um, on him, um, which he then turned into a, into a book. He wrote a biography of him. Uh, which he published in in the 80s. Um, and uh, it's quite surprising, really, because um, politically, um, Maxton is is uh, far to the left of uh, of Gordon Brown, certainly, as, as he was when he was um, in office. And um, he was leader of the Independent Labour Party, uh, which was affiliated to the Labour Party, it actually predated the um, formation of the Labour Party um, by a few years. Um, and it was affiliated to the Labour Party right up to the point at which um, the party split in 1931, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Um, but the reason um, perhaps some people might not have um, considered him to be a leader of the opposition is that um, he wasn't um, ever sort of formally uh, uh, in that role, as is the case with a few of ours. But I'm going to make the case for him because just like we had um, a few weeks ago during the First World War, um, an example there of a leader um, who was clearly meeting the definition of being leader of the opposition, the same is true of, of Maxon. He made this point uh, as well um, because, of course, in 1940, uh, the... Uh, the government was formed as a coalition, uh, Churchill's government, the Labour Party as the main opposition party went into government, uh, and so did the Liberals. And so under the definition of, of the official opposition, um, and in fact, uh, for the first time in 1937, we had a, a salary for the leader of the opposition, which is a big milestone. And in that legislation, they had to define who was the leader of the opposition. And it's quite clear that the definition in that is the leader of the party outside of government um, that's the, got the largest strength in the House. As we talked about in the First World War, um, that was a definition which was sort of contested. Well, by this point, it was quite clear what the largest party was. Um, admittedly, he only had um, four MPs. Uh, so uh, there's another sort of crossover there that we're talking about people who are never going to become prime minister and don't have that many supporters. But um, 
Maxim was the leader of the Independent Labour Party. They were outside of this coalition. They had four of them. Um, and so uh, on that definition, he should have been leader of the opposition. Um, and as he said in the House at the time, he should have had the salary as well for it. Um, but the Speaker, and again, under this legislation, um, if there's any doubt over it, the Speaker de- decides who, who should be the leader of the opposition. The Speaker and the Prime Minister Churchill both said, well, effectively, there isn't a leader of the opposition at the moment. Um, and so Maxton didn't get it. Um, but he would have been quite a, a, a sort of uh, fiery choice because he was, I think, would have been by far the, the most left wing um, leader of, the, of the, the opposition, probably until Jeremy Corbyn, really. Um, he was um, Scottish. He was born in a suburb of Glasgow in 1885. Um, he began actually as a, a conservative uh, at university when he was at University of Glasgow. Um, and he underwent a conversion after he became a teacher. And uh, he was struck by the poverty of the children that he taught and had quite a, uh, a dramatic conversion to socialism and joined the Independent Labour Party. Um, he uh, was then, uh, during the First World War, a conscientious objector, um, and he was actually imprisoned for a year uh, for sedition after making a speech in defence of um, Clydeside oh, wow. uh, stop stewards who were facing deportation. Um, and he wasn't elected to Parliament until 1922 um, as the MP for uh, Bridgerton in Glasgow. Not sure if that's linked to the TV series. Um, and uh, they then had 10 um, Scottish Labour MPs. As I say, they were affiliated to the Labour Party, and so they were often counted in with the uh, with the Labour numbers, but they were an independent um, party. Um, he was quite a fiery speaker. Um, there's some, some wonderful examples of his uh, of his sort of uh, heckles in, in Parliament. Uh, he once uh, was suspended from the House for calling uh, Conservative MPs murderers for um, cutting funds uh, to health authorities. But my favourite is when in 1933, um, the Prime Minister, uh, Ramsay MacDonald, who of course had uh, previously been the Labour Party uh, leader, uh, made a particularly meandering speech. Um, and Maxton interrupted by, by calling out, sit down, man, you're a bloody tragedy. Uh, <laughs> which... Oh, the good old days when everyone behaved respectfully in uh, exactly. In Every, everyone looks back and says they all behaved much better in the past. They really didn't. Not um, I feel like I should know this. When there was the government of unity during the Second World War, where do they all do they all sit on one side <laughs> in the Commons? Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves because I could speak for a long time about this. But, yeah, we'll, we'll get on to that actually um, next week because it is quite interesting what happened um, during the Second World War. As I say, Maxton made the case the Independent Labour Party should have been the, the opposition, um, but they weren't. And I'll explain what happened um, in, in future weeks. But, yeah, there was there was far too many of them to sit on the government benches. So effectively, the Labour Party remained sort of sitting on the on the opposition benches um, for the most part. Um, and of course, those who were ministers who had to speak from the government dispatch box, went and sat on the front bench. But the rest of their MPs, they spilled over um, across the other side of the house. Well, I feel like I've learned something. So that, I think that's what we do. Uh, that's what we're trailing ahead. We're teasing ahead <laughs> to next week, Nigel. Yeah, it is. It is one of my favourite sort of nerdy pub quiz questions on opposition is who was the leader of the opposition during the Second World War? And um, we'll, we'll be answering that question in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but the answer is not James Maxton. No, but as I say, he he did make the point. And if you look at the legislation, it's pretty clear. You know, all the other yeah, parties yeah. were in government, and he had, although he only had four, um, he was the next That's largest the biggest party. party out on the on the on the. I outside. still think it's probably more MPs than some of the leadership candidates have got at the moment. Stop it! We've got to have five minutes not that without talking <laughs> about them. That was the story of James Maxton, leader of the Independent Labour Party during the war. We now turn to Hastings Lee Smith, who filled in for Labour leader Clement Attlee as leader of the opposition while Attlee served in the war cabinet. Another household name for you uh, today. Uh, We've got Hastings Lee Smith. 
um, who I'm sure everyone is familiar with. Um, he was leader of the opposition um, between May 1940 and December 1941. Um, and he's effectively the answer to a, a pub quiz question because I, I often, when I'm, I'm um, asking students about sort of the importance of, of opposition and uh, sort of the structures of it, um, one of my favourite questions is to say, who was leader of the opposition during the Second World War? Um, and there's usually a pause whilst they sort of try and work it out because, of course, as we talked about last week, the problem during the Second World War was that all of the major parties were in coalition. You had a wartime coalition under Winston Churchill. So not only the Labour Party but the Liberals as well uh, were in the coalition. And the only people who were left outside it, as we talked about last week, were the independent Labour Party of four MPs. Um, and James Maxton, um, their leader, tried to assert his right to be leader of the opposition. Um, he was unsuccessful in that. The Speaker ruled against it. Um, so who was le- the leader? And, and the answer was um, Hastings Lee Smith. He was um, a former minister in a previous Labour government. And uh, Clement Attlee, at the formation of the coalition, when Attlee went into uh, the cabinet uh, chose one of his colleagues um, who was not uh, one of the ministers who was uh, joining the coalition government to effectively uh, chair the Labour Party and act as leader of the opposition. Um, and I, I think it's quite an interesting uh, sort of constitutional point because, of course, he wasn't opposing the government. He was um, supporting the Labour Party and the Labour members in the government. He was chosen by the leader of the Labour Party to do it. But the point is, parliamentary procedure needs to have a leader of the opposition to work properly. You need to have somebody to ask the questions. Uh, You need somebody to uh, respond once a statement's been made um, and so on. So it's effectively um, a position where, you know, you had someone there who was acting in the role of leader of the opposition, but not actually opposing the government. Um, He was uh, quite an interesting figure. He was born in India in uh, 1878. Uh, His father was in the Royal Artillery. Um, he was then educated uh, privately back in the UK and he spent a brief time uh, just down the road from me actually at the Royal Military Academy at, at Woolwich uh, but he decided against the military career he decided not to um, follow his father into uh, the military and took a, a very sensible decision he decided to become an academic which is a great thing to do um, unfortunately he uh, after he'd been to Oxford uh, he, he got a job at the LSE um, which was a King's academic um, is the place over the road that we don't talk about. But anyway, he became a, a lecturer at the LSE where he taught um, on and off for the rest of his life. Um, he was elected, first of all, as a Liberal MP uh, in the 1910 election. Um, so this makes him slightly unusual because, of course, the Labour Party had been in existence for 10 years by that point. Um, but he'd been a Liberal at university and he was elected as a Liberal in that election, representing, first of all, Northampton. Um, but then, as we talked about a few weeks ago, there was the split in the Liberal Party uh, and you had the non-coalition Liberals and he followed them. And in 1918, he lost his seat. Um, he actually chose to fight a different seat in Don Valley and was defeated there. Um, but he was uh, elected as MP, uh, as Labour MP for um, Keeley in 1922. He, after the defeat um, uh, that he suffered in 1918, he, he uh, joined the Labour Party. Um, and he represented that constituency on and off um, for the rest of his parliamentary career. He, we had quite a lot of elections. We think we've had elect, quite a lot of elections recently, but um, he uh, was elected as, as the MP in 1922. He lost the seat in 1923 and then won it back again in 1924. So um, <laughs> he was a, a bit of an on and off MP, um, but he won it again in 1924 and stayed there. 
Um, he was then made postmaster general in Ramsay MacDonald's um, second Labour government, uh, a great cabinet post, which I think is a great shame we don't have a postmaster general anymore. Um, and uh, he was then uh, briefly promoted in 1931 to become president of the Board of Education, appropriately for his educational background, um, and joined the cabinet. Uh, but he was only in that post for a very short time. As we know, the Labour government of that year um, uh, split. <clears throat> there was the great crisis overspending uh, and Ramsay MacDonald's expulsion and so on. Uh, and then the Labour Party was um, crushed at the election of that year and he lost his seat um, again. Um, but he returned in 1935 and became a front bench uh, spokesperson um, under Clement Attlee. Um, but he wasn't appointed, as I say, to the coalition government in 1940. But he did play quite a leading role in the, um, in the formation of that uh, government in the sense that he was one of the leading uh, advocates for a division um, and a vote in the House of Commons over the Norway debacle, which is what brought down Neville Chamberlain. So you could say that he did play uh, a role in the formation um, of that government. So after he was then appointed, uh, we might have expected him to have been that sort of acting leader of the opposition throughout the Second World War. Um, but very sadly, in uh, December of the following year, in 1941, um, he succumbed to ill health and uh, after a bout of Influenza. He died at the age of, of just 63. Um, so it, it's interesting to, to speculate what might have happened had he lived, because not only would he, I, th- I think, have been um, the leader of the opposition throughout the Second World War, but I think we could probably expect he would have played quite a leading role in the Labour government of 1945 as well. Um, so just talk me through the practicalities of him being the leader of the opposition, but uh, as a Labour MP, so what he he... What, stands at the dispatch box opposite? Is he then grilling potentially other Labour ministers? Was there a whole yeah. shadow front bench? Yeah, indeed. I mean, I don't think there was a, um, much of a shadow front bench. What, what the rule was, um, and the Speaker determined um, on sort of the opposition front bench, was that any former minister uh, who wasn't in the, in the government could sit on the front bench. So um, there was a bit of a, a sort of dispute about it. As I say, James Maxton and the Independent Labour Party tried to assert their right to be the opposition to go and sit there. But the ruling from the Speaker was that the opposition front bench should be reserved for former ministers who were not in the government uh, of any party. So former sort of, you know, Tory cabinet ministers could go and sit there. Um, of course, there was a problem with space because, you know, you had pretty much all of the House in, in government. They had to spill across onto the uh, opposition yeah. benches. And most of the Labour Party sat there. Um, but uh, it was it was him who sort of was asking, for example, the business question. Um, and a lot of the famous speeches that Churchill gave during uh, th- that year from 1940 um, onwards, during the time that Lee Smith was uh, was nominal leader of the opposition. If you read the Hansard of it, you've got Churchill's speech. And then the person who speaks afterwards, of course, we'd normally expect it to be the leader of the next party. It's Hastings Lee Smith because he was the leader of the um, of, of the opposition. So it's it's an interesting sort of case study in what happens if you don't have an opposition. And the answer is you have to kind of invent one. That was Hastings Lee Smith, the first acting leader of the opposition during wartime, while Clement Attlee, the Labour leader, was serving in Winston Churchill's cabinet. Finally, sticking with the wartime opposition leaders, I chatted to Nigel about Frederick Pethick Lawrence, who took over from Hastings Lee Smith. We're still on the period of time where we've got uh, the wartime leaders of the opposition who weren't, strictly speaking, the leader of the opposition because they were um, Labour MPs, but of course the Labour Party was in coalition uh, during the war. Um, and so last week um, we had Hastings Lee Smith, who was the first uh, of the sort of acting leaders of the opposition, um, and he sadly died in uh, December 1941. So today we're looking at his successor, um, a chap called... Frederick Pethick Lawrence, 
Um, and he's even more of a pub quiz question because he only lasted uh, just over a month in the role. Um, so uh, we've got um, three leaders of the opposition during the war who, as I say, were sort of acting leaders of the opposition, but none of them received the salary. So um, we can't say that they were the statutory leader of the opposition. But um, as I said last week, you needed someone there to sort of ask the questions every week um, and to sort of fulfil that role. Is this another double-barrelled middle-class radical? Because Pevic Lawrence was pretty progressive and radical by the standards of his time, wasn't he? He was, yes. And um, it's been a while since we've um, been able to um, sort of ding the bell. I'm not sure if you've inherited the bell today. I've not got um, it on me. Sadly, Matt's <laughs> taken it to Lyme Regis. Oh, well, <laughs> that figures. Um, but um, but yes, um, Frederick Pethick Lawrence um, was an, another uh, leader of the opposition who went to Eton and Cambridge. Um, which is the first one we've had for for a while, but but yes, as you say, he was um, quite a progressive figure. Um, he was was born in London um, in 1871 to um, his father, who was um, the owner of a building firm. But he was quite well off, um, and so as I say, attended Eton and then went on to Oxford. Um, and he uh, trained as a, a lawyer, became a barrister. Um, but his progressive views were really influenced by um, his wife, um, uh, Emmeline Pethick. And, and uh, he actually just, took her name, which is, exactly. you know, even by the standards of today, is quite progressive. But in the Indeed, early 20th yeah. century, is pretty remarkable, no? Yeah, I was going to say, you, you say he's, he's double-barreled. Well, that was by choice. And he was, he was actually born as, as Frederick Lawrence. And um, his wife, um, Emmeline Pethick, was really the, the radical um, of the two of them. And uh, so he took her, her name, became um, Frederick um, Pethick Lawrence. Um, and she was very involved in uh, the campaign for women's suffrage. Um, and that's really sort of where they uh, formed a, a formidable double act and uh, uh, really where most of their their political fame comes from. They were, were active supporters of the um, uh, Women's Social and Political Union, uh, the suffragettes. And as a barrister, he used his legal practice um, to defend suffragettes in court. Uh, he also stood bail for quite a lot of them as well. Um, and uh, he and his wife were also um, sentenced to prison and imprisoned alongside Emmeline Pankhurst um, for conspiracy to incite violence. Um, so they've, they, they certainly earned their, their spurs as, um, as sort of suffragette supporters. Um, and in fact, one of his, his legacies um, is that he is commemorated on um, the, the, the statue in, um, in Parliament Square, along with other um, supporters of, of, of the um, women's suffrage movement. And he was a conscientious objector during the First World War. How did he, how did he adjust to the role, short-lived though it was, as leader of the opposition during the Second World War? Well, I mean, as you say, he, he had been uh, a conscientious objector during, during the First World War, but, but when we came to the Second World War, um, he, I think, was, was, was more sympathetic to the need to, to fight fascism uh, and to fight, fight Hitler um, during the 1930s. Um, he was quite interested in um, in foreign affairs, and, and I think had had um, moved some way beyond um, his his position in the First World War. But it wasn't really that that he was um, focused on um, during that that period in in opposition from 1935, when he returned to Parliament um, and served under Attlee. He was actually more interested in finance policy. He he served as um, Labour's um, sort of shadow chancellor, effectively, or certainly one of the shadow um, treasury team. Uh, at that time and um, and so when 
um, the Labour Party went into um, into government, uh, he might have been expected to to become a minister then and, and wasn't. Um, he had been um, financial secretary to the Treasury in the, the second Labour government. Um, and so you might have expected him to go into that coalition government. But because he didn't, uh, along with others who were, were senior um, figures in uh, in the Labour Party, he was one of those who um, was able to serve on the opposition front bench as as one of the sort of de facto um, opposition spokespeople um, for the sort of opposition that wasn't an opposition. So he was really deputy to um, Hastings Lee Smith in in the role um, as we talked about last week. And then when he died, it was it was very natural that he should should take over. And just finally, Nigel, why did he only last a month? And then what happened? <laughs> Well, we'll probably get on to speaking about that a bit next week because um, the reason he um, he only lasted a month was because he was displaced by somebody uh, more senior. Um, Arthur Greenwood um, was in the uh, coalition cabinet and he uh, resigned from government um, in, uh, well, I think it was January of 1942. He of Speak for um, England yeah. Arthur fame. Indeed. And so um, he being a, a senior figure um, in, the, in the government uh, and in the Labour Party, once he sort of left office, he sort of fit the criteria of being a senior former minister um, who was able to then act as leader of the opposition. And so um, he displaced uh, Pethit Lawrence in, in that role. Um, and uh, as I say, you know, he'd only just taken that over. So um, he was a bit of a stopgap, but I think it's worth saying that he was a, a big figure in his own right. As, as, as you said, for his progressive views within his um, his own um sort of marriage with his wife taking her name but also being a, a significant um, figure in the, in the uh, women's suffrage movement and then later on in the the labor government from 45 onwards he was also secretary of state for india so another one of these leaders of the opposition who um where it's a footnote in their career but they're actually quite significant figures in their own right well that brings us to the end of our monthly roundup of leader of the opposition well, you can catch Nigel Fletcher every Monday at 10 to 12 with his Leader of the Opposition of the Week. And we'll be back to normal episodes of the podcast from next week.